Exodus 11.1, the word said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. So Moses said, Thus, the Lord, thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. And the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handbell, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will there be again. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your plans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of, this, of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door, and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. When your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people in Israel and Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, as he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. He, then, he, sorry, then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both of you and the people of Israel. And go serve the Lord as you have said. Thanks, Coop. Thanks for being here tonight, guys. Um, glad to have you. My name is John Trapp. And uh, is my microphone on? To have it messed up here. Sorry, it's probably my bad. Um, let me see here. Oh, I've got it on mute. There we go. Can y'all hear me now? Awesome. Hey, I'll give it up for John Ferret, by the way. He's the man. He can sound. Um, glad to have y'all here. My name is John, and uh, this is your first time. Uh, one of your first times to RUF, especially. Want to welcome you uh, and tell you that we're glad to have you here. Uh, RUF is a place where we gather around God's Word every week, and we look to see what it says about people who need help. Because what we believe in RUF is that all of us, all of us are sinners who fall short of the glory of God. And so that means whether, whether this is like the first Christian thing you've ever come to or the 10,000th Christian thing you've ever come to, we're all in the same boat in terms of our need for God's grace. And what, we, what I want you to see every week when you come to RUF is that the, the God of the Bible, the story that the Bible tells, is it claims that there is a God who moves towards people who are hurting and broken, and he moves towards people who are guilty and sinful, and he gives them hope. And that's what I want you to see tonight. We're continuing a study in, through the book of Exodus. Last week, we looked at the first nine plagues that God sends upon Egypt. 
in order to convince Pharaoh to let God's people go. They are in bondage in Egypt. They're in slavery. All of God's people, the Israelites, have been there for over 400 years. And now we come to the 10th plague. This is the plague that works. This is the plague that is going to get Israel freed. And I want you to see, as we look at this, the kind of salvation that God works for Israel, because it's also the kind of salvation that I would propose that he might be able to work for you. Or if you are a Christian, it is the kind of salvation that he has worked for you. So let's pray and ask God to bless our study of his word. Y'all pray with me. Lord, I ask now that the words of my heart or the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and holy in your sight. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay. I'm the youngest of three kids by a fair margin. I'm six years old, younger than my sister, eight years younger than my brother. So I gladly took on the role of annoying little brother uh, in the trap family. And we would do lots of road trips. And my, uh, my dad, whose actual name is Rusty Trap. I didn't really get that that was kind of funny until I got older. I was like, oh, your name's Rusty Ink. That's hilarious, Rusty Trap. Anyway, um, Rusty Trap is a pretty steady guy. Um, when talking about his emotions one time, he described himself as a cold fish when he was describing his own emotional kind of spectrum. So um, he's, uh, he's just kind of a steady Eddie type guy. But the last thing that you want to do on a road trip is finally push things too far to where Rusty Trap, who is six foot six and a fairly imposing human being, says, enough is enough. And I was kind of the kid who would always do that. He would, you know, we'd be back in the back seat, like, oh, John crossed over my line, like, no, I didn't, no, I didn't, like, you know, like, reach over again, like, John crossed over the line again, like, no, I didn't, no, 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 just ridiculous. So, that was me, and then there would always be that moment where I'd see, like, my dad, my dad's eyes have been, like, straightforward, looking at the road, and then, like, his eyes would go up into the rear view mirror, going, oh, no, here we go. And, he, and, and, and then the next thing he's going to say is, enough is enough, and at that point, you know, like, you need to, everything needs to change from here on out. And in this passage that we're looking at, we get a picture of God saying enough is enough to two things. And that's really, that's the outline of my sermon tonight, okay? God is going to say is enough, enough is enough first to evil and second to a sacrifice. So first, enough of the evil and second, enough of the sacrifice, okay? So, First off, God is going to say enough is enough to the evil. You've got, we've, we've got to appreciate what is going on in this story to get why God is going to say enough is enough. Israel, and it's so easy to sterilize this and to not imagine if this is true, what, what this would actually be like. That for hundreds of years, the people of Israel have been exiled refugees living in a a land that's not their own, under the thumb of a merciless ruler named Pharaoh, who has been, who has made them into slaves. And now as he has noticed that the people of Israel are growing in number, Pharaoh goes the genocide route. 
and orders for all of the young boys who are born to Hebrew mothers to be drowned in the Nile. That's Pharaoh's plan for population control. And now, you've, you really, to appreciate this, you have to imagine what it must have been like to be a pregnant mother. Prior, before sonograms, right? You have no idea who you're about to give birth to. And the grief that you must have had to see your baby boy born and then taken from you and thrown into a river while you could do nothing to stop it. That's where God's people find themselves. And I can't help but imagine that the question that they are asking is, when is enough going to be enough? Like, are you going to do something about this? And I can't help but think that some of you may feel that same way. That maybe you look around at the world. You look around at the things that have happened to you. Or the things that have been done to you. Or maybe you even look at the news cycle. And you see the kinds of things that are happening in our world. You see poverty and human trafficking and racism and greed. And maybe you even look into your own family and you see the hardship and the way people hurt one another and the way people betray one another or maybe even your own friend group. You see that. And it begs the question, when is when is enough going to be enough? And here's what I want you to see. God would not be good if he didn't do something about it. And this is why the God of the Bible presents himself as a God who is just. He is a God who promises that he will one day have his full justice done. And when we begin to think of God in that way, it can, especially for people who are in a westernized, modern world, thinking of a God who is wrathful and just can feel off-putting. To imagine that God, that there is a day coming that God promises where he is going, he's going to have his vengeance on all of the wrong in the world. Some of y'all have heard me read this quote before, but I think it's a really helpful one as we consider this. It's from a man named Miroslav Volf. And to understand where he's coming from, you have to know that Miroslav Volf grew up in the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. And he lived as a young boy through a political revolution that saw all kinds of horrific bloodshed happen to innocent people, including people in the little village that he grew up in. And now Dr. Wolf is a professor of theology at Yale. And I want, I want to read to you something that he said in a lecture. And I'm, I'm going to give just for like, honestly, for like, because of trigger warnings and stuff, like, I want to give you the PG rated version of what, he's, of what he says. Um, but he's going with this hypothesis that in order for God to be worthy of our worship, he has to be a God of vengeance. 
And he goes so far as to say, like, the only way that I can be a peaceful person is that I have to believe that God is just. Listen to what Wolf says. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. And then he goes on to say, my thesis will be unpopular with man in the West. But imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been violated, whose fathers and brothers have been killed before their very eyes. If God were not angry at injustice and deception, and if God did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. He goes on to say, and this is, man, when I heard this, it's like, zing. It takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. But in a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that thesis will invariably die. Let's close in prayer. I'm just kidding. Um, What Dr. Wolf is saying is that God has to do something about it. If he's good, he he has to do something about it. We need a God who can make things right. Israel needed a God who can make things right. And the question that they're dealing with, it's the same question. Some of you, if you remember when, when we preached through Revelation 5 last year, when we preached the book of Revelation, which you can listen to on the RUF podcast if you're interested. Um, when, we, when you come to Revelation 5, there's this scene in the throne room of God. And... There, John, who's writing, who receives this vision and who's writing the book, he, he talks about how he sees um, this scroll and it's sealed. And what's inside the scroll, we come, on, we come to find out, is the way that God's going to make everything right in the world. Like God's response to the evil and the suffering that we experience. But in the scene in Revelation 5, when the scroll is brought out, there's no one who's worthy to open it. And John, it's a, John says, I began to weep bitterly. Because if no one can open that scroll, that means that we'll never be able to make sense of all the wrong in this world. That all of the suffering and the hurt and the oppression, and the wrong, and the kind of things that Egypt is inflicting upon Israel, none of that is ever going to be dealt with. And so he begins to weep. But then the scene changes, and we see that there is somebody who is worthy to open the scrolls. There's a voice that says, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah... He is worthy. Now, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. This is a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the one who is able to make sense, who's able to make sense of our suffering. And when, it, when this is determined in Revelation, the scene is everyone breaks into worship because God is going to do something about it. God is going to enact judgment and something is going to be done. But there's just one problem with that. 
There's just one really big problem that God is going to make everything right in the world and deal with the evil and the suffering. And my best way I can illustrate that is to tell you about an experience I had in Sunday school class when I was in the second grade. Maybe some of you can relate to this. Um, I remember sitting in my Sunday school class. I think it was with my Sunday school teacher named Miss Hudson. I can't remember if it was her or not. But we're in there and, you know, we're all, we've got like our high C Kool-Aid kind of drink that we're eating and like those little ring cookies that only churches make you eat. You know what I'm talking about? Like the butter ring cookies that you put on your fingers. Um, anyway, I digress. We're eating our snacks and Miss Hudson says, okay, everyone, like let's pray and ask for God to bless our time together. So everyone closes their eyes, but you know, I figured I should make sure that everyone is abiding by the rules. So I didn't close my eyes. And while we're praying, I'm kind of, you know, surveying the room, scanning. And I noticed that my best friend, Michael Marino, has his eyes open. And so um, you can probably guess what the, um, you know, religious do-gooder boy does as soon as we're done uh, praying. I raise my hand and I say, Miss Hudson, Michael had his eyes open during the prayer. And then, y'all, Miss Hudson turned into a Jedi. Because she was like, John, how do you know? that Michael had his eyes open during the prayer. And like that logic trick that she did blew my mind because I immediately realized, like, oh no, I had my eyes open during the prayer. I'm bad too. Here's the problem with God doing something about the evil and the suffering in the world. Is it just like Michael Marino, we have our eyes open too. See, our world is filled with sinners like Pharaoh, and we are just like him too. If God is going to deal with the evil of this world, then he's going to have to deal with us too. He's going to have to deal with the ways that we cheat and deceive people. He's going to have to deal with the way that we're apathetic towards people who suffer and forget about them. He's going to have to deal with our addictions that hurt other people, even though we like tell ourselves that they don't. He's going to have to deal with all of the blights that we bring on the earth because he must do something because he is just. And God is going to say enough is enough about the evil. And you see this, that God, God is not going to limit this judgment that's happening in the land of Egypt. If you look at the passage, this final plague, it's a judgment. It's, it's not just for Egypt. If Israel doesn't listen to God, the judgment is coming for them too. God institutes this meal that we, that Elizabeth read for us called the Passover so that Israel might be spared. He tells them to sacrifice a lamb or a goat to spread its blood on the doorposts and on the lintel to eat the meal. And apart from this provision, Israel would be judged too. You can see it in the text that we just read. In verse 22 of chapter 12, during the Passover, God says, none of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning. What's implied there? If you go out of the house, judgment is happening out there. And you will come under it too. You've got to stay in the place of provision of safety. You see, God God knew 
like he was able to tell the difference between between Israel and Egypt. Like he could have, if he was just coming for Egypt, he could have just come for them. Like in in the previous plagues, in six previous plagues that happened, he separates things that are happening to the Egyptians, like their livestock dying. He separates that from the Israelites' livestock. Like he's able to differentiate. So why the blood on the door? Because without it, they would be judged too. Here's the deal. Whether you are a pagan like an Egyptian or a religious person like an Israelite, both of you need to be covered. You can't be so bad that you are beyond the the reach of covering. And also, you can't be so good that you're beyond the need of needing to be covered in order to be protected from God's judgment. You can't be good enough. You can't be religious enough. It's an egalitarian judgment. And there's only one hope, the blood of the lamb covering the entry. You have to be covered. Six years ago, on a summer day in Henryville, Indiana, Dominic and Reese Decker were playing outside in their yard when their mother, Stephanie, ran outside and called them in because she had just gotten a warning on her phone that a tornado was coming straight to their neighborhood. She gathers her children, calls them into the basement, and they can hear what sounds like a train, which is the sound of a tornado, swirling and zooming right towards their house. She gets them into the basement just in time, closes the door, down the stairs, puts her kid on the floor, and puts her body over them as the house topples down on top of them. Stephanie felt beams of the house slamming into her, furniture crushing on top of her. She broke seven ribs. She lost her legs. And when they pulled her from the wreckage, her two children, Dominic and Reese, eight and five, were completely unscathed because they'd been covered by someone who loved them, who had given their body, who had literally thrown their body in front of the oncoming doom to save them. And here's what you need to know, because God is going to say enough is enough about the evil, but he's also going to say enough is enough about the sacrifice about the one who is able to cover you. See, God knows that the judgment is coming and he makes a way to spare his people. And there's this really interesting interchange that we see in this passage. Um, God uses, uh, Meredith Klein makes this observation. He's an Old Testament scholar. It's really, I think, fascinating. So the Hebrew word pasah, um, the word that we translate in this passage, Passover, um, it's used in other, um, the word Passover is translated differently in other parts of the Bible, okay? So, like in Genesis 1-2, the second verse of the Bible, God's spirit is described as hovering over. Instead of covering over, the word Passover is interpreted as God's spirit is hovering over the chaotic waters of the deep. And actually, a couple chapters later, we're going to read that 
the presence of God um, is going to protect Israel in, this, in the form of a cloud, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. And that cloud is going to be described as hovering over his people, hovering over God's people to protect them. And this same word for hover over, Dr. Klein suggests that we should use that as we read this passage too. And I actually think that it kind of, it makes the reading a little bit more smooth. Look at verse 23. We're going to be geeky here for a second. Verse, verse 23 says, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will passah. Pass, we, we, that's translated Passover, but... If we translate, the Lord will hover over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. And here's the image that that gives us. It gives us the image of God as he sees as his like destroyer who he is sending out his just his justice that is going to be enacted. The one who is going to say enough is enough to all the evil. As God is sending out his own very wrath, he stands in the doorway and covers those who have covered their door with blood. In other words, God stands guard against his own wrath. And I want you to see as we have, as we wrapped up every single one of these studies of Exodus, how much this points to Jesus. This points us to Jesus because, and I mean, this is so beautiful. The last supper that Jesus has with his disciples is a Thursday night. Uh, Friday is going to be Good Friday. He's going to go to the cross. He knows that that's about to happen. The Thursday, that Thursday night is Passover. It's the feast that we just that gets instituted in this passage that we read here. And I just imagine the disciples walking into the Passover feast. These are like good Jewish boys. They've been to plenty of Passover feasts before. They know what is the catering that happens there. That there's, there's bread, there's wine, there's unleavened bread, there's wine, and then there's a lamb that you're supposed to eat. But they walk into this Passover meal with Jesus, the Last Supper, and they walk in and they must have been like, y'all, who catered this? Because there's bread and there's wine, but there's no lamb. There was no lamb present at the Last Supper of Jesus when they're celebrating the Passover. Why? Because Jesus is the lamb. It's why he picks up the bread at that meal and says, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. He pours out the wine and says, this is my blood that has been shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What Jesus is pointing to, to his disciples, is I am the lamb. Who is going to give himself for you. It's why Jesus' cousin John the Baptist, when he sees him, the first thing in the book of John that's said about Jesus as he's approaching John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the true and greater Passover Lamb. He is the Lamb that all the other Passover feasts over generations and generations of Israelites celebrating this meal and remembering how God covered over their doorway. And spared them from the wrath to come. He is the lamb who fulfills all those lambs. All those other lambs were pointing to the one great true lamb of God. 
And you have to see. If you don't listen to anything else, listen to this. This is where Christianity just stands so far apart from all the other world religions. Don't listen to someone if they say all the religions are the same. They're not. Because the Christian God of the Bible is a God who suffers. There is no other God who suffers. There is no other God who's worshipped by other religions who, who suffers. It's why Nicholas Wolstersdorf, who um, is a philosophy professor at Harvard, is also lectured at Yale and Princeton. After he lost his son of 25 years to a really sad, tragic mountain climbing accident, um, Dr. Wolstersdorf wrote this book called Lament for a Son. And he writes these words. To redeem our brokenness and lovelessness. In other words, to finally say enough is enough. The God who suffers with us did not strike some mighty blow of power, but he sent his beloved son to suffer like us. Through his suffering, to redeem us from suffering and evil. This is so beautiful. Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. And so in Revelation 5, when they say, Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, He is worthy to open the seals. Everyone in the throne room of heaven looks, and they, they just said, Behold, the Lion. And when they look at what the announcement is about, they see a Lamb. Behold the lion, they look, it's a lamb. And it says, it's a lamb who looks as if it had been slain. See, Jesus is the lion. He is the lion who can say, enough is enough of the evil. He is the lion, the great warrior, who is able to fight and defeat the things that oppress you and hurt you. He is the one who will have his vengeance on all the wrong that has been done in this world. He is the lion, but he's also the lamb. He is the Lamb of God who has suffered for his people. And because of that, he is the only one who is able to open the scrolls and make sense of it all. It makes sense. So here's what I need you to know tonight. What you need to know is that the the death of the Son of God That God looks at that sacrifice on your behalf if you believe in him. And God says enough is enough. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, I have um, my roommate when I was in college for, uh, we lived together for two years. He's an artist now. And like sells art for like, he sold a a piece of artwork last year for $30,000. Like crazy, crazy talented. Um... So uh, I want you to imagine that uh, my friend David, he used to like draw me when we were in a, like in our in dorm room, you know, hey, you need to practice that drawing. You'd be like, yes, you can draw me. You know? So imagine he brings this amazing picture that he's drawing. He's like, hey, trap, like, 
It's thinking about all the stuff they used to draw. You just wanted you to have this. You know, it's pretty cool. And this, I get this amazing piece of artwork, and I look at it, and I want you to imagine that I'm like, you know what? Like, but honestly, I've always wanted to be able to grow a mustache. Like, my facial hair game is not really that great, but like, I'm just gonna, just, I'll be right back. And I go and get like Lucy Trapp's magic marker, and I start to like draw a, a mustache on this amazing picture that's just been given to me. What would, what would David say? He would say, stop, what are you doing? The art is finished. It's finished. You trying to add to something that's been, to this that's been finished, it's only going to deface it. You know what Jesus' dying words are? On the cross. As the lamb is making the final payment, Jesus' dying words are, it is finished. The payment is finished. So here's what that means. Like, if you believe in Jesus, God looks upon you and he smiles. There is no other work you need to do to convince him to like you or to love you because the payment is finished. It's finished. And not only that, but God has made a way that he will be with the ones that he loves for forever. When he will have finally and fully put all of the evil and suffering to rest and say enough is enough. Revelation 21 tells us there will be no more crying, no more pain, no more mourning for the former things have passed away. The Lamb of God is worthy. He is worthy to have done this. And he is worthy. I would, I would suggest to you, if you're here and you're thinking, like, I've, I've always like, kind of thought about being a Christian or been around Christian stuff, but I've kind of like held back. If you're one, you, I want you to see he is so worthy of your trust. He is so worthy of your faith. And he welcomes you, not because you've earned it or added to it or made yourself any more lovable. He welcomes you to come to him and to let him be enough. So come to him knowing that and believe and call out to him. Let him cover you. Let me pray for us. Lord, thanks so much for these students and the privilege it is to share your word with them. I pray that you would drive your word deep into our hearts. That you would help us to see that you are a God who enters into our suffering. That you are a God who loves us too much to leave us to ourselves. That you are a God who is just and you are too good to let things go um, unpunished. And we thank you that you have stepped into time and space to take the punishment that we deserve. And I pray that you would help us to believe that enough is enough and to cast our faith and our hope in you. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.